Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Matt Huber. Matt is a professor and director of graduate studies in geography and the environment department at Syracuse University. He's the author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. But we're here to talk about a piece that he wrote uh, with Fred Stafford called In Defense of the Tennessee Valley Authority Today. Matt, welcome to the couple. You're, uh, you're overdue for an appearance. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. Love the show. I think we started, we started talking over a year ago, um, and there's, there's been plans to have you on ever since. So again, I'm, I'm uh, glad to make that a reality. Um, I gave a pretty bare bones intro there, as you know, um, guests on this podcast, uh, introduce themselves to a large degree. So, um, spice it up a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, look, looking forward to, uh, to getting to know you in this, in this next hour, but, um, yeah, help our, help our listeners get a sense of, of what you're all about. So I'm a, a geographer, which, uh, in the United States, at least usually confuses people. They think it's just about capitals and maps <laughs> And geography is a really complex and multifaceted discipline. Um, But I actually found myself uh, in a a pretty vibrant uh, sub-discipline of geography uh, called Marxist geography, where it's it's the the most cited geographer in uh, probably in history is this guy named David Harvey, who really developed this kind of Marxist political economic analysis of, of sort of the spatiality and geography of capitalism. And so I was really influenced by that. I got myself into geography and then um, and then uh, found my way into studying energy um, and became extremely interested in how to think through the relationship between fossil fuels and capitalism as a particular uh, mode of production, as a particular political, economic, historical formation. And I wrote my first book on kind of um, the centrality of oil to creating a particular type of um, geography and landscape of, of, of working class uh, life in the United States in the post-World War II era and how oil kind of fueled this kind of geography of privatism and kind of individualism um, rooted in um, home, and automo- uh, home and automobile ownership. And then eventually how that kind of uh, petroleum-fueled privatism kind of built uh, a political formation that helped um, influence what we call the kind of rightward turn or neoliberal turn of uh, American politics in the 1970s towards kind of anti-governments, uh, anti-tax, um, you know, um, some of the stuff we talk in the in the piece about deregulation, free markets, and, and the rest of it. But since I've studied oil, I've just become more and more interested by energy in general. And, and lately, like many, uh, and like many of your guests, I've just become fascinated by electricity and trying to understand it. It's really complex and difficult to understand at times, maybe more so than oil. <laughs> but um, I've definitely become really uh, sort of engaged in trying to learn more about the political economy of of electricity. Would you say you've become a heretic yet? Um, I know there's sort of a brand of of leftists that have uh, started to talk positively about about nuclear energy. Or would you count yourself in those in those ranks? Well, yeah, I've publicly said positive things about nuclear, which have definitely got me in trouble with the usual suspects of sort of um, uh, renewable energy advocates and environmentalists more generally. Um, I've also sort of vocally kind of expressed a kind of um, uh, critique of kind of typically what's called like eco-socialist politics, which more and more is basically aligned with degrowth politics. And, and I try to argue for a much more traditional Marxist view, which really thinks, you know, the basis of socialism has got to be industrial development of what he called the productive forces. And that these, this kind of industrial development, including of fossil fuels actually creates the conditions for human emancipation on a, on a wider scale. Um, and, and that doesn't, that doesn't go over well amongst many of even people that consider themselves Marxist or eco-socialist. They don't, you know, industrialism is sort of painted as, as inherently, um, they call it productivist or 
problematic or, 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 or bad. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, I'm trying to, trying to kind of find uh, 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 some friends and <laughs> common allies in this struggle. Uh, sometimes uh, I, it, it's a lonely struggle, but it's great to be on this podcast because I, I love um, the perspective that you bring to your listeners. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, it's all, all about the guests. I'm just the, the curator. I guess I've got a little <laughs> bit of an editorial line, but yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's dig into this this piece that you guys wrote again um, uh, in defense of the Tennessee Valley Authority. You know, we we have a very uh, wonkish and, and educated uh, listenership, but it is very international. About 50% is North America, but the rest is uh, really all over the world. Um, so I think we should probably start off by laying out a bit of background in terms of, you know, what is the the Tennessee Valley Authority? How did it come to be? What's its relevance? Um, you know, why did you guys write about it? Yeah, so... I think the Tennessee Valley Authority is is kind of like a crown jewel of this era that you know you've talked about with previous guests about um, this sort of renaissance of public power, um, particularly in the U.S. in the 1930s. You know, um, basically in the early 20th century, we created what um, one historian called this kind of utility consensus, where we handed over particular territories to invest their own utilities and guaranteed them profits as long as they sort of subjected themselves to regulation by these public service commissions. But that system really did was prone to monopoly power, profiteering, really price gouging. And, um, you know, Samuel Insull, sort of this notorious uh, power trust robber baron type capitalist who was really um, seen as this, this evil personification of private power. So, so there's all this movement for for actually this is a critical resource, uh, not no longer a luxury. People were starting to see electricity as like a, a basic thing that everyone needs, and um, and Franklin Roosevelt, uh, you know, came into power first as the governor of New York State. He actually set up something that we now call the New York Power Authority, where he created these uh, this public uh, utility that developed massive hydroelectric power in New York State um, and is still with us today, the largest public utility at the state level. Then he went on and became the president. And very early in, when he, in his term in 1933, he got together with another uh, huge critic of the private power industry, someone named George Norris from Nebraska. And they tried to put together this vision for uh, public power and um, in an already existing part of the um, country in, ten- in the Tennessee Valley where there was some public development due to World War I, they set up the Tennessee Valley Authority. And from the start, the goal was really to build public uh, hydroelectric power and offer this as a cheap alternative to the private um, utilities in the region And they did this thing, they called it the yardstick program, where they were really trying to offer such cheap power that it would either force the private utilities out of business or or basically, um, you know, um, force them to shut down, essentially. And and, and in so doing, they also were trying to build up their own kind of demand. They were encouraging um, municipal uh, uh, municipalities to create public utilities to buy the power that the Tennessee Valley Authority was creating. And they also encourage rural communities to set up these um, rural uh, co-ops to help deliver the power from the Tennessee Valley to a variety of, of regions around um, the South. And so it was this incredibly broad, big vision of public power that helped electrify the countryside, which in 1934, only 10% of farms had electricity. By 1950, it was up to 90%. And so it wasn't just in the Tennessee Valley um, they set this up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the Bonneville Power Authority, and uh, they set up the Rural Electrification Administration, which helped give cheap financing to rural co-ops all over to help electrify the countryside. And so, you know, it's an incredible um, vision of, you know, public development for public benefit, offering cheap energy to masses of people. This wasn't a TVA thing, but I always bring up how they hired Woody Guthrie, the folk singer, to sing songs about the Columbia River doing work for the people. And it's, you know, you look at climate politics today and you could never imagine like some folk singer singing songs about carbon taxes or whatever climate policy we have on the agenda today. Like this vision of kind of like inspiring populist 
power. And, you know, the TVA slogan was electricity for all. Like that kind of vision I find just incredibly inspiring. And uh, we, if you look at the electricity market today, you don't see a lot of that big public power vision that we advocate for in the piece. I mean, it's, it's so interesting putting yourself or trying to put ourselves, you know, as people who live in, in the wealthy industrialized West um, into the shoes of the kind of pre-electricity era, um, you know, and, and, you know, what you're talking about in terms of electricity being this, this public common good is something we, we so take for, for granted unless, you know, maybe we've traveled somewhere where there's just absolute destitute poverty and either unreliable electricity or no electricity at all. And, um, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to be in, in a place like that, but, um, you know, it, it, it reminds you of, of those, uh, I think the slogan of, of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, which, which said that yes. communism, yeah, you can finish the quote for me probably, but communism is Soviet power, which means kind of worker power plus electrification of the whole country. Um, and he would, you know, the, the Russian revolution happened in a backward, uh, peasant, uh, uh, country, uh, of Russia where electricity was nowhere near, uh, much of the country. So he, he saw very, and again, this is why kind of old Marxism is very much different than the kind of new versions of uh, things you've talked about, like eco-socialism or energy democracy. I mean, he, it was very clear to Lenin, like, well, if we want communism, we, have to, we need to bring electricity to the country it, like, as soon as possible. Um, and, yeah. then, and then the, T, the TVA, if, if, if I'm understanding correctly, a lot of it was about sort of breaking up the monopoly of, of the sort of electricity robber barons and either out-competing them, like either force them to bring their prices down to levels that were reasonable or just out-competing them. And that's, exactly. that's just something that's so hard to imagine in our, our sort of present neoliberal reality. But, you know, you, we've talked a little bit about um, this kind of eco-socialist response um, and, you know, Edgardo and I did a show on energy democracy and its discontents and talked a bit about yes. Jamal Bowman and Corey Bush's uh, resolution. But why don't you sketch out for us again in, in a little bit of detail um, this this phenomenon, this kind of small as beautiful merchant generator prosumer um, model that that seems to be sort of so in vogue um, in the in the new left um, and the way in which it's undermining um, the TVA or undermining these these historical examples of public power. Yeah, if I could, I think it'd be useful to kind of situate it in the history of of capitalism and how capitalism developed in that period of the TVA in the 30s. You had this kind of um, all this restructuring that happened that put into place what many people in political economy call this kind of Fordist or Keynesian kind of consensus where you had extremely powerful unions and you had a strong state that, you know, taxed the rich at high levels, redistributed wealth to a lot of social programs, welfare programs, social security programs. And this was a form of capitalism that was quite stable and some would say prosperous for a good bulk of the working class for the post-war period in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, unions were very strong. And this is the same period where institutions like TVA and even some of the private investor-owned utilities were able to kind of create a heavily unionized, um, uh, uh, integrated, vertically integrated electricity system that was um, growing and prosperous in that post-war era. But then you get the crisis of, uh, of the 1970s which is beset by kind of what is called stagflation. You get, a, which is familiar today, rising prices of commodities alongside of um, a recession, increasing global competition uh, for this kind of forest production system from places like Germany and Japan. And uh, profits are starting to decline for capitalists and they are starting to not be so uh, so friendly to uh, give their profits over to wage gains requested by unions or taxes requested by the state. And so you get this real backlash against that um, system that we often refer to as neoliberalism. And that in the 70s, you start to see a move toward deregulation of, um, of tax cuts for the rich and wealthy corporations. And the move, the move towards um, uh, of really like free markets, but also trying to break apart capitalism into little, smaller, more efficient entities. And that's where you really get um, this attack on uh, on the big uh, investor-owned utility um, complex 
Because essentially, during the 70s, like everything that was big, like unions or the government or these big organizations that had built up during the, the Fordist era, were seen as like inflexible and rigid and corrupt. And, and so the consensus became we need to kind of smash these, 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 these things. So unions were the thing they wanted to smash, number one. But another thing they wanted to smash was these incredibly um, massive, unwieldy um, uh, regulated utilities that own generation, transmission, distribution. And they were these big things. So um, what they thought would be great is to basically um, subject these utilities to deregulation, where you, you, the utility itself wouldn't necessarily own all the generation. You could open up the market to uh, what are uh, merchant generators who can find more efficient and cheaper ways to produce electricity. You know, the main one that comes on the scene after this is, uh, you know, more efficient natural gas um, type generators, but also renewables. And this is precisely the time in the 1970s where, as your um, uh, previous guests have talked about, Amory Lovins comes on the scene, starts talking about basically how this kind of centralized uh, utility system is sort of inherently corrupt. He even critiques unions for being having too much power, uh, too much unchecked power over this energy system. And he advocates this, you know, the soft path of really breaking up these big utilities, uh, uh, investing in smaller scale generation all over the country, whether it be solar or wind or or even he advocated he, he, he advocated people having little um, oil fired power plants in their own homes. Like <laughs> he really was more about this dispersed, decentralized geography, even above the renewables aspect of it. Um, and that aligned very well with these wider neoliberal forces, which wanted to deregulate airlines, deregulate trucking, deregulate everything. And they eventually succeeded in deregulating a lot of uh, the electricity markets. And that tended to be rolled out on a state-by-state -state, uh, basis. Not all states have gone through this, but a lot of states started going through this deregulation, which opened up the market uh, for uh, these merchant generators. And the, the thing we bring up in the piece is essentially, for a variety of reasons we can go into, all renewable production sort of benefit benefited from this deregulation. And the only way they were able to get into the market was to, to, to try to uh, basically come into it via this becoming this sort of new efficient merchant generator that could try to compete and offer this, this, this cheap uh, renewable energy alternative. And it strikes me, you know, just being limited to being a merchant generator and selling in, you know, power from your, your own facility, not being responsible for the functionality of the entire grid, um, that, that suits renewables quite well. And I mean, that fits into this kind of skewed logic that wind and solar are, you know, the cheapest form of energy generation to add to a grid. Um, I guess when you're just talking about selling electricity to a wholesale market and not the actual end user experience um, of, you know, reliability or of affordability when the weather doesn't cooperate. Um, is that sort of what, what you mean about them only really working as, as part of this merchant generator model? Yeah, it's quite a transition because when you had the old system of vertically integrated uh, regulated utilities, I mean, for as profiteering as they might have been, they at least were planning controlling a whole system of electricity. They were kind of in charge of all aspects of the grid and they were heavily regulated by these public utility commissions. Um, so that, and that, so that you could see that there's this, this process of kind of planning and social control over this vital uh, service that we all rely on. So when we deregulated it, uh, it created all these merchant generators who can just get into the generation market and try to compete and sell. And they have no concern for the overall system of transmission and distribution, which is just left to these other entities. And their only concern, like anyone in capitalism, is to make money, uh, make profit, and do so at whatever way possible. And so one thing that's frustrating to me about when you see renewable advocates always talking about, um, oh, it's so cheap, right? <laughs> uh, it's so cheap, and, and and perhaps it is cheap. In uh, you know, Marx has this distinction between exchange value and use value. Well, exchange value might show oh, cheap prices for renewables, but if you actually look at the use value, like what this this resource actually can usefully give you, 
in the actual grid system, you you can see its use value is exactly is very limited, <laughs> and it and it, it can only give you power at certain times of the day, and it needs to be backed up, and um and I and and obviously um anyone that's concerned about the grid system as a whole is going to have to take that into account. But these merchant generators who are just trying to make money off uh, generation don't have to worry about that. And, and, and that's, that's a problem. Um, we've basically broken up the electricity system and, and, and subjected it to competitive markets when um, it really is not a system very well designed to be subjected to chaotic boom and bust markets. Like, it's not only um, it you know you have to balance supply and demand in these grid systems. <laughs> it's 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 it needs like socialized planning for it to function and 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 so um, it's like the they tried to kind of like graft on a neoliberal ideology of a free market onto a, a physical grid system that really relies on careful socialized planning. So it's um really weird actually. <laughs> no no absolutely and I mean. You know, you reference in the piece uh, David Hughes, who's someone I've talked about before with a certain amount of contempt. Um, you know, but I think he argues that you know the intermittency is a good thing. It's it's something that we should really align our lives to doing so that we harmonize more with nature and and don't overuse nature. And of course, as as someone who uh, had a son who was in an incubator for five weeks, you know, oh my God. absolutely reliant on ultra reliable electricity. The, the Malthusianism of, of Mr. Hughes um, strikes me uh, very deeply, very deeply. But, you know, one of the things you guys say is this uh, small is beautiful decentralized energy provides ideological cover for a ruthless form of renewable energy capitalism, which threatens our fight to halt climate change. I was hoping you can elaborate that on that a little bit more. So there's a number of um, aspects to the argument we make in um Essentially, we've already talked about the first part that renewables have welcomed and relied on reckless deregulation of our electricity system. They've thrived on it. Um, the second thing I'd mention uh, is they've <laughs> like the whole renewables market has been constructed through this financialized um, system called renewable energy certificates. This is another thing neoliberalism has been really trying to do. It, a, a colleague of mine named Kathy McCaff says, we're going to sell nature in, in order to save it. So they've created all these like clever commodification of, of natural uh, systems. Like I have a friend who studies wetland banking where they're trying to kind of like if some corporation destroys a wetland, they can offset it by doing like buying some wetland credits. And of course, we know about carbon credits and emissions trading and so forth. So... As it happens, um, the lovely corporation known for helping the grid be stable, Enron, <laughs> which uh, uh, basically invented this thing called renewable energy certificates, which the article we cite that, that, that credits them for inventing it basically has a footnote that says they did that because they knew it would help create markets for Enron traders. <laughs> and so they created these renewable energy certificates, which allow renewable energy merchant generators to not only sell electricity on the grid into the wholesale markets, as we talked about it before, but they can create these little certificates for each megawatt of energy they create that can then be sold to other entities that want to get credit for renewable energy. And the main market for this has been created by uh, renewable portfolio standards at, at state utility levels. You'll notice they aren't often called clean energy portfolio standards, and nu nuclear often does not apply. So they're literally renewable energy portfolio standards. And if utilities want to abide by these regulations, they have to basically buy up these renewable energy certificates. And it's really, Enron was quite clever because they understood that renewable energy is intermittent. It's not something that any entity can know that they're, you know, if the, renewal, if the, if the re renewable portfolio standard says you need to get 70% of your energy from renewables, it's hard to know, like, how you get to that number with it, renewables coming on and off and, 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 and all this kind of stuff. So if you can get these certificates and you, you kind of basically get the authorities to bank them and credit them for renewables, you can kind of basically look at the energy you're consuming and accumulate enough of these RECs to kind of equate with what you're supposed to have for renewables. And, um, and, and therefore, you're able to 
get credit for having renewable energy. So the other huge market for this are some of the most powerful corporations like Amazon. Uh, we cite Microsoft. You know, you, you probably see in the headlines like Microsoft announces we're, we've gone to 100% renewable energy. It just means they they're consuming on the grid like the rest of us, and they buy up enough of these RECs to equate with their consumption to um, basically make it seem like they've created some sort of renewable energy utopia where they're just, um, you know, uh, relying on the sun and wind to power their their server farms or whatever. So that's the second thing. I only drink, uh, you know, 100% renewables Coors Light beer, you know, just uh, as, as my <laughs> sort of big climate contribution. But Oh, my God. If I can, um, there's one more thing that I think is the most crazy thing about renewable energy development, which is that since the 1970s, when you get this push towards neoliberalism and deregulation, a lot of states and a lot of um, uh, eventually the federal government decided that if we want to incentivize uh, renewable energy development, we need to create tax credits for it. And there's these things called the production tax credit and the investment tax credit. And essentially, it creates, uh, essentially, if you're a renewable energy developer, you can get these tax credits. Um, and what that has created is a situation where some of the wealthiest uh, people in the society um, are the ones who have so much wealth, they want to shelter from public coffers, from the tax people. And so they're the ones in the market for tax credits of all kinds, but particularly renewable energy tax credits. Uh, I have to shout out my colleague, Sarah Knuth, who wrote a really incredible article about this, the long history of this. And uh, basically, they're called tax equity investors. They, they basically gobble up these renewable energy tax credits from these merchant generators. And um, um, essentially, they are able to um, shield their wealth from, from taxes this way. And so if you look at who's investing in renewable energy tax credits, it's some of the most powerful entities like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs. And of course, I think on this podcast, at some point you've mentioned the Warren Buffett quote where he says, there's no point of building wind farms unless you're going to get the tax credit. And I think in the piece we cite that's, uh, I forget the number, Warren Buffett or Berkshire Hathaway has something like uh, 35 million or millions of dollars invested in renewables. Billion. Billion with a B. So so incredible, um, uh, you know, like this has become a sort of redistributive process where renewable energy development is basically um, shielding uh, a tax shelter for the wealthiest people in, in the country. And so, you know, in this context, um, you have folks um, in the environmental movement and in the green left um, who have become the unlikely allies, I guess, of, of, uh, of this process and of these, uh, you know, enormous uh, financial corporations and, and billionaire individuals. Um, and who have become enemies of of these institutions of public power, like the TVA? How do you, how do you explain that that evolution? And and where are things at right now in terms of attempts to break up the TVA by by environmentalists and and folks on the green left? One thing we argue in the piece is that the the green left has sort of attached itself to this this very hard to achieve demand of 100% renewable energy. You know, Bill McKibben has sort of been shouting that now the science has shown that we can we can reach 100% renewable energy. Um, and by having this extremely narrow vision of renewable energy, um, they, they basically are going to promote renewables when, wherever they can. So the problem is when you look at these big public entities that we think should be driving the energy transition like TVA or even in New York State like NIPA, the New York Power Authority, they because they're public entities, they literally cannot build renewables uh, because they can't take advantage of these tax credits. Um, you know, they they pay ta they don't pay taxes, so they it's not cheap for them to develop these renewables. Only private entities. So literally, TVA has some renewables, but it's contracting out to private developers to do this. And so because of this very weird uh, system where it only makes sense for private merchant generators to do renewables, um, when environmentalists are saying we must do 100% renewables, they're basically saying we should have 100% private power. We should have 100% uh, highly um, competitive uh, deregulated markets. And um, and so I think, I think one thing we're trying to get um, in this piece is to – 
get them to think a little more broadly about a, a, a wider suite of technologies that we're going to need for the energy transitions beyond 100% renewables. And what you find is that they're, they're, they have such a narrow fixation on solar and wind that they aren't able to, to consider the benefits of even what environmentalists would, would consider to be like a no-brainer storage technology for intermittent renewable power, something like green hydrogen, um, where you use renewables to create hydrogen, which can be used at all hours of the day. I've done some work with public power uh, advocates in New York State where they've drawn up some public power legislation, which tries to empower NIPA to build um, renewables. But they basically say that when we say build renewables, we don't mean nuclear, we don't mean green hydrogen. And, you know, it's not surprising that environmentalists are going to reject, reject nuclear. But the, the fact that they put green hydrogen in there means they don't even, they're not even willing to consider perhaps one of the most viable storage possibilities for, for renewable power. So it's, it's frustrating. Um, and, and so essentially these environmentalists, when they're promoting renewables all the time, uh, are, are essentially promoting this system that, uh, that is only going to be private. It's only going to be market. And to change that, we'd really have to change the, the very structure of these markets and change these, ta these crazy tax credit incentives that, and make it possible for, um, for entities like TVA and NIPA to actually be able to build out clean energy in the way we need it. Right, right. I mean, I, I just uh, was invited to, to my nation's capital to give uh, some testimony on, on this idea of just transition. And I had a few things I, I could talk about. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've resisted the, the, the pressure, I think, to self-censor on this. I, I think there's a huge amount of, um, of social pressure not to, to, not to talk smack about, about wind and solar. Um, and it's, it's almost like I don't want to compare it to identity politics, but it's, it, it, it almost has the feeling of like, you know, the perception is that you're, you're kind of smacking a, a vulnerable child in the face or something when, in fact, you know, this is a 300 plus billion dollar year industry that's, as you've just laid out, um, you know, largely financed and backed by, you know, our wealthiest institutions and individuals. Um, but, you know, the, the reality of, of this, this renewable vision is, is one that is really quite workerless, um, particularly for workers within, say, North America, um, where the supply chains to, to make wind and solar are um, almost exclusively offshore. There's been a race to the bottom. You know, um, they're very commodifiable um, in terms of the ingredients, uh, you know, for the, for the, uh, the, the energy generation tools. Um, and once installed, they're, they're workerless. And, and so it sets up this real tension between, um, environmentalists and labor. And, and I think we've seen that, you know, all over the place from Illinois, where the legislation, um, that the unions put forward to try and save the nuclear plants was resisted by environmentalists because environmentalists said that prevailing wage would discriminate against potentially people of color who wanted to, you know, build, small-scale renewable operations and take advantage of cheap labor in order to do it and it would be, you know it's, it's just like a very bizarre situation so like can you talk a little bit about the, the the tension there between um labor and and environmentalists and and that kind of like what is the green left is is it the kind of infection of the old left with environmentalism which has made the politics kind of completely unrecognizable to folks like you and myself yeah it's uh it's really uh, hit me how the role of NGOs has just completely um, taken over what we call the left. <laughs> and, and so a lot of uh, climate advocacy and public power advocacy, particularly the kind that informed like Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman's, what I thought was a great resolution, energy as a human right. I love that, but it was the completely first paragraph driven. was awesome. Yeah. And then it went completely, to <laughs> Yeah, completely driven by NGOs, though. You didn't see... There's one union on their signatories and it's like from Puerto Rico. Um, and so what we trace in the piece is that actually the unions were right there fighting deregulation um, from the start. They saw it as a threat to their members uh, because and not only a threat to their members because it could lead to the closing down of all sorts of power infrastructure, whether it be uh, power plants, uh, but also like we quoted some like basically some of the most prominent socialist labor activists in, uh, in, 
in, in the field. But, and they were concerned with grid stability. They were concerned that deregulation would lead to shutting down a lot of the excess capacity that you need to balance in the summer months when you're getting that crazy load. And, you're, and so they were, you know, you know the, the workers in this, in this industry know it really well. They care about this service they're bringing to the people. And so any socialist, any leftist should place the workers' demands and interest and concerns about this, this crucial infrastructure. That should be the center of our organizing efforts. But because the so-called left has been, uh, I, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, hijacked by NGOs and all these kind of academic institutions that don't actually... Unfortunately, and more I learn about this, they don't actually understand how the infrastructure and the grid system really works, how these uh, deregulated wholesale markets work. They just don't understand it, and they have this sort of ideological, um, cultural fixation on 100% renewables. Uh, so basically, like these movements, these climate movements, these public power movements are just not engaging much with the unions that are in the heart of the sector we need to transform to solve climate change. So, um, and so sh surprisingly enough, like the unions are pushing back on a lot of this legislation. They're feeling like they weren't uh, informed, but, but there have been these, and we cite them in the piece, there's been a few cases, and I think you may have talked about them, like in uh, the Illinois Climate Jobs Coalition that brought unions together and climate activists and actually came basically put the unions at the table from the start. And when those come together, of course, they want to keep nuclear plants open and they uh, want to ensure they'll combine it with some renewables development, particularly if you can get project labor agreements where it's good union labor that builds those uh, utility scale renewable developments. That's great. Um, and so there, there have been instances where unions have been at the center of organizing around Green New Deal, public power, climate types of things. And, and those types of initiatives have really won. Um, but when unions are ignored and unions are sidelined, it, 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 it's, it's not the way anyone on the left or anyone who calls themselves a socialist should, should go about it. We really need to put unions and the workers at the center of this, this effort for sure. Well, and so much of the, the just transition conversation, um, you know, particularly amongst, amongst the left, um, is this idea that, you know, well, we can just legislate, um, you know, high degrees of unionization, we can legislate high wages, we can guarantee those to people, no matter what the technology is, or what degree of skills you need in the job to, to, you know, assemble the technology. Um, and, and it's interesting, you're, you're referencing the, the climate union jobs uh, act, or what, you know, whatever that legislation was, or that that proposal was, you know, unions were able to force prevailing wage, um, but that's because they come from a place of existing power. If those nuclear plants are no longer open or those workplaces where workers actually have some power because they have high skills that can't be replaced easily by scab labor and have the ability to go on strike, um, if they lose that power and the only power they have is, is kind of working sort of on these transient temporary jobs and low-skilled labor putting up wind and solar farms, they're not going to have the power to, to say there should be a prevailing wage or there should be a certain, you know, safety in their working conditions. Like to, to me, that's, this is what was so sort of surreal, um, you know, looking at, at the just transition arguments being put forward by, by, you know, what I used to call my tribe by, by, uh, by the left is just this detachment from the, the, his, the, the, the labor history and the history of, you know, how just working conditions are won in the first place. How will a just transition be won? Well, It'll be won by workers who, again, are, are high skilled, who can't be replaced by scab labor and, and who work at facilities with lots of workers in them who can withdraw their, 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 their work um, in order to put pressure on management to, to win concessions. And I, I just think that's so, so fundamental. But I'm, I'm sort of uh, going off on my own tangent here. I'm still high off of that Ottawa experience. And I do want to zoom back in on the last few points uh, from the article. Um, you know, I'm not trained in economics at all. And so this idea of um, like the rentier class yeah. is something yeah, that yeah. I think is, is really important and something that, you know, the benefit of having this podcast is I get to really fill in my weak points here. So can you talk a little bit about that, that element of the story? Yeah, if I can, though, I just want to follow up on what you were just saying, because I think it's so important. And, and I actually just want to say, um, because I'm not sure Marx gets brought up on this podcast that often, that it's like basic Marxism that what he, what and I had some quotes from Marx in the piece, and I think the editors wisely just said, we're not quoting Marx in here. And, but, but essentially what he argued is that 
what capitalism does is it actually centralizes the productive forces into centralized areas that bring tons of workers together. And that actually makes organizing that those workers much easier because they're right there, all centralized with the productive forces. And then in a kind of optimistic Marxist tale, the Marx the it brings it's it centralizes the productive forces. The workers are there, they organize easily because it's all in one central place like a nuclear power plant. And then they're able to take over the very uh, production system that they already know how to do because they are the ones that run it. Right? So that's this sort of kind of basic Marxism, and there's this way in which decentralizing workers uh, has been a way to defeat worker power for the last, I don't know, half a century, right? Um, and, and, and the way in which uh, environmentalists are always advocating for the decentralized energy system, it's, it's, they don't take into account it's kind of going to inherently be an anti-worker um, type of geography because it's really much harder to organize workers when they're dispersed all around and, and a solar farm over there and a, a rooftop over here and, and all that stuff. But that that connects well to the, the rentier question because what, what a lot of renewable development is, because as your listeners know, it's extremely land intensive, right? So in capitalism, if you want access to land, you have to negotiate with the owners of that land. And if you want to do a solar farm or a wind development, those owners are going to want rents on those lands. So a lot of who benefits from renewable development are the landowners, right? The landlord class, if you will, who are able to extract rents from these developments because they're getting permission to put these infrastructures on their land. And so we argue that you basically take a very centralized, industrial, high-wage electric industry based on centralized power plants, and you replace it with this dispersed kind of rentier where uh, landlords are extracting rents and they are the rentiers in this situation from these renewable energy developments. The other thing we bring up is that you could actually um, uh, position, you know, rooftop solar, you know, uh, people that have solar panels on their homes uh, because of certain, this varies by geography, but if you have this thing called net metering, like that has been this controversial thing in California, essentially it means you're getting paid more for the solar you're producing than it actually is giving to the system as a whole. And then the people that don't have solar are paying the, the grid costs for the whole system through their rates. And so those solar homeowners who tend to be wealthier, tend to be affluent, uh, 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 very wealthy people are getting these kind of extra uh, economic benefits, which is another word for rents, from this rooftop solar situation. And it's the poor uh, working class people who are paying the higher rates to deal with the, the whole system. And so those are an, another class of kind of Marx would call the petty bourgeois property owners who are getting these uh, benefits from their, their solar panel, panels on 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 their homes it's very few it's very futile like neo-feudal like it's it's not it's it's not a system that's based in in you know industrial production or or making things or you know workers getting together and producing value it's citing this this equipment on land and and extracting rent as you're saying joe manchin the villain of everyone right and i'm no fan of joe manchin he's he's a disaster he's very aligned with private fossil fuel capital and all that stuff but like he's He's proposed this idea: we should close, we should replace coal-fired power plants with nuclear plants. And I know many others um, in the nuclear advocacy think that's a no-brainer, and it should be a no-brainer for a leftist, right? Because your coal's bad. Like we need to get away from coal if we're concerned about climate. That's obvious. But if you're able to actually repurpose existing coal power plant infrastructure with nuclear. Uh, uh, and just transition it completely to zero carbon and maintain uh, the high-skilled, high-wage workforces that come with centralized power generation? Like, well, what's wrong with, like, how is that bad? In, unless you have this, this, this sort of just anti-nuclear position from the start. How, I mean, I guess in closing, how, how has the piece been, been received? Um, how have you been received? You know, how, how have things been for you? I, I know that you were, like, involved, I think, in Sunrise. You've, you've been involved in the... Uh, I'm not sure if it's the, the New York Public Power or something or other. I know, I know you've been very involved in these these kind of movements. And, and again, I was only partially joking about that that heretic element um, and, yeah. and kind of excommunication. But it is it is hard for for folks who take these kind of principled positions 
um, you know, and, and whose sort of tribe, um, you know, may reject them? Like, are, are you winning people over? Uh, what, what sort of cognitive dissonance um, are you running into or, or are your, you know, former allies running into uh, seeing, your, seeing your work? I think it's the piece has gone over pretty well. Uh, we sort of expected a few uh, a few months ago the uh, Ted Nord, Nordhaus um, published this sort of pro uh, industrial agricultural piece in Jacobin that um, went after kind of uh, the small scale kind of uh, agroecology people, and that that got roundly denounced by all the people you'd expect to denounce it, and everyone sort of freaked out. And we kind of thought that might happen with this piece. It would just go through this sort of Twitter churn of denunciation and moral, you know, moral defamation. And but honestly, like there wasn't a lot of that. Um, to be to be more accurate, we got a lot of positive responses, and and some some of it seemed to be kind of reluctant, like praise, like this is pretty good. We we agree with this, but uh, but but on the most part, from kind of like the the people we were. Uh, critiquing, uh, I would say it's just been silence. Like they haven't really brought it up to denounce it or to call attention to it or to anything. So we think that's maybe a, a, a small victory that the silence means at least maybe they're, if they've even read it, like maybe they're taking some of the arguments seriously. Because a lot of these people are leftists. They do understand that neoliberalism is bad. They do understand that deregulation is bad. They do understand that Warren Buffett's bad. So Maybe we're reaching some of those people. Maybe we're getting them to to rethink this kind of ideologically blinkered focus on decentralized renewables as the only option we have. Uh, but it's it's hard to say. I hope I, I hope it continues to to get out there and people read it and and the conversation continues. Well, you know, I mean, I will say that renewables are the organic food of the uh, of the energy system. So, um, yeah. but but Absolutely. it's interesting. I mean, I, I you know, I think we have similar sort of political traditions that we emerge out of. Um, you know, my focus has has really been, you know, after spending a lot of time um, arguing with the people that yell back the loudest, um, aka my my former sort of tribe uh, on the green left. Um, I've just found them to be often like quite irrelevant from the perspective of actual power and, and, and making change. And I think that's different in the United States than Canada because um, the green left in the US um, and the NGO industrial complex is, is so empowered by the other great sort of tax evasion um, tool that, that your um, bourgeoisie or oligarchy has in terms of this ability to create foundations and, and dodge being taxed by, by making these donations and generating this, you know, multi 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 billion dollar nonprofit industrial complex um, which is able to sustain so many of the uh, bloated budgets of, of environmental groups like National Resource Defense Council or Sierra Club club we don't they don't wield that kind of power in Canada it's very interesting how that shifts the politics but you know I've been focusing most of my communications efforts on you know getting on talk radio and, and just trying to talk to everyday Canadian voters um, and and very much bring this language and this messaging you know minus the Marx references. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it really is, uh, seeming to, to ring true and I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting kind of walking this path and, and, and meeting like-minded people, um, you know, from, from a similar political past. Um, Matt, before we go, I wanted to, I wanted to give you a, a chance to plug your, your new book. Um, I think it just came out in March. Um, so yeah, it, it's May, May 10th. It's May 10th, it's a week, oh a week from this Tuesday, it'll be out. So. Okay, cool. So yeah, let's, let's, let's get the uh, decouple. We like to sort of have a lot of breaking stories and, and, uh, you know, get the first <laughs> hot take on things. So, um, yeah, pitch, pitch your book for us. So it, it's called climate change is class war and it's, and it's trying to resuscitate some of the things we've talked about today. This kind of old socialist Marxist, uh, tradition of, of class struggle over industrial production is really applicable to the climate crisis. I mean, that's what we're dealing with. We have to completely transform our industrial system. And so um, the, the book basically has three parts. The first tries to, in, in classic socialist uh, terms, to, to really re-conceptualize uh, how we think about class and responsibility for the climate crisis, because we tend to think about it's all about consumers and their carbon footprints and sort of decentral again decentralized behaviors and lifestyles of people that really matter but uh, socialist class analysis really focuses on production who owns and uh, profits from material production who owns the means of production 
And everything we consume is can be linked back to someone profiting off of the production of, of the stuff, and that includes energy. So tries to shift uh, responsibility more to the owners and producers of, of energy, and that's who we need to struggle against and not have this kind of moral lifestyle uh, politics about lowering your carbon footprint and all that kind of stuff. And the second part really resonates with what we talk about today. It's about how climate politics as a whole is driven by the professional class or the PMC, the professional managerial class, and how this kind of class uh, position creates these ideological kind of uh, climate politics, whether it's a focus on science and believing or denying the science or knowledge, or this kind of, um, this what I call carbon guilt sort of anxiety about your own consumption leads you to um, uh, promote a politics of less, uh, consuming less, degrowth, and all the rest of it. Um, and then the last part, the most important part, is about how to build a working class climate politics that could be grounded in these type of big rollout of public goods like the TVA or like the New Deal or like the or Green New Deal, but also one that really centers unions. And I actually have a couple chapters on electricity and how that's the strategic sector for climate, but should be a strategic sector that we think about from a labor organizing perspective and trying to organize in electric unions to get them on board with the energy transition. Because honestly, like we've talked about today, if the unions in the electric sector aren't proactive and aren't strategic about um, their uh, members' uh, future, that they're going to be swept away by this kind of green energy transition towards private renewables, non-union renewables. And so it's in their interest to kind of start organizing and building a, a, an energy transition plan that, that, that can actually make sure the energy transition is union-based and based on union labor. And so... Yeah, that's that's what it's about. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk about it here. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, one of the things that uh, that I'm working on our next our next major, I guess, kind of decouple media slash Canadians for nuclear energy project is uh, creating a uh, policy report on this idea of the just transition. Sort of building off the the themes of uh, my testimony in Ottawa, looking at technological specificity in terms of what you know what. Um, decarbonization technologies can offer and cannot offer in terms of a just transition and examining and showcasing the Ontario coal phase out as a as a template of just transition where we use nuclear for 90% of the power to phase out coal but also looking at some of the unjust sort of detransitions in terms of the Indian point closure um, and examining you know issues of supply chains jobs and and again negotiating power um, of workers based upon what sort of uh, energy technology they're operating at centralized versus decentralized and nuclear versus renewables. Um, so yeah, maybe Matt, I'll, I'll get you to jump on uh, to help with a little peer reviewing on that. Sounds like we're, we're swimming in a lot of the same waters here. Um, Absolutely. We could definitely use some help in the U.S. building that power as you were talking about earlier. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> we, need a, we need a playbook, a, a Canadian playbook that you can export to us or something. <laughs> well, first you got to smash the NRDC, which is not going to be so easy. But anyway, right. um, very nice talking to you, Matt. Um, it's again been uh, been a long time coming, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back soon. So thanks for making the time. Thanks so much. It was really great to be on. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.